Well, good morning. I am... Um, I'm aware that part of the pastoral spirit is knowing um, the, the reality of the people. And so I am so glad that, uh, that Tommy and, and John know about what happened with the Mariners last night. <laughs> I know that there was a game uh, and that when I saw the score, it was 0-0, but it sounds like it was tragic um, in the end. <laughs> so... I'm sorry. Um, welcome. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. Welcome to everyone online. Um, we're going to dive into um, the series that we've been in for a while, What Happens Next, only we're looking at different portions of scripture this morning along with Acts. So let's, let's begin together. Um, if you've been walking with us for some time, you'll know that we've been taking time to reflect, to take stock, and to ask ourselves what's next, right? We've been in a series of transition, um, and that's appropriate for us to be reflecting. For many of us personally, as well as for our larger community, we're at a crossroads. Um, the last few years have changed our world very much. They revealed many things, um, and we're reeling to catch up and understand. We've also been given new questions. In our present moment, there's fires of various kinds, locally and globally, that need to be put out. And as we look to the next season, I think for many of us, our taken for granted from before are being taken away, or our taken for granted might just be different. Um, so life is always changing, right? But I feel like in this season in particular, um, there's, there's a ladenness with change that many of us are feeling. And so I'd like um, for us to use today as a time to just practice taking stock, to check in with ourselves, um, to get honest and consider how we can be a prayerful spirit-led people as we continue our faith journey. And we can see from our reflections these past few weeks um, on Pentecost that Ben's been leading us in, how having a prayerful spirit-leading life requires the discipline of waiting, um, of lingering, in prayer, waiting on that hope that we don't know when it shows up and how. Um, the small number of disciples gathered in the upper room in Acts 2, if you can remember from the past few weeks, uh, during Pentecost, this would indicate to us that waiting is hard. Our experiences can confirm this. It's hard to wait to stop the doing and all the talking and activity to grow still and quiet to listen. And I would hazard a guess, I, I could be wrong, but I would guess that deliberately practicing the discipline of pausing to wait and listen is not something many of us choose to do much of the time. Perhaps we do it only when we find ourselves needing that discipline. It's not a choice we'd make. I know that that's true in my life much of the time. When it comes to prayer especially, I think it can be easier to gravitate towards affirmations, declarations, certainties to words, but silence to come to God and be still, to wait, to listen in silence. Um, I think that for many of us, this is hard. Personally, I found myself in the last season for many months now, actually in a season that's felt different from, from past seasons. Um, in prayer, in communing with God, I found myself unable, um, unwilling to make words. Um, in group prayers, whenever prayer uh, came up, like the option to pray came up, I would feel a pressure to create 
the right words. Um, I'd feel a pressure to just use words, but, but prayer with words has felt, for me, um, artificial. It's felt a little dishonest just for where I'm at right now. Um, so I stopped uh, using words or trying to force that to come. Communion with God didn't stop, but the words stopped. And so communion without words has just felt more honest for me personally in this season. Um, I just think that right now words are actually getting in the way for me. Um, and I wonder if, at least for myself, if God is inviting me towards a posture of receptivity so that I won't blow right past what God might be wanting to reveal in asking me to listen and wait. That's just the season I'm in. You may relate or your experience may be nothing like mine. That's great. We're a diverse body for a good reason, right? But if we look to the experiences and encounters of fellow travelers in scripture, we find that often God does show up at some point or another in our lives in this way. And we're invited to step into waiting in the silence. We find that from our text in 1 Kings that Mika read just a moment ago that Elijah, after making a mighty display of the power of God, fears for his life and runs and hides in Mount Horeb. He's afraid, he's confused, doubting. I think it's interesting, right? There's this contrast. There's an enormous display of God's power and then the next moment he's running for his life. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty and instability in his world. Here he experiences, once he gets to the mountain, he encounters God he experiences first a theophany. Um, a theophany is just a fancy word for this. Um, the Old Testament display of God's power and might often in very stormy language, right? So Elijah experiences a theophany. There's this big stormy display of God's presence and power and might. But we're told here, and this is pretty unique, that God isn't in the theophany. He's not in the storm. He's not in the wind or the earthquake, or the fire. The text is very clear. This happened and God was not there. God is found after all of that noise, all of that experience, in the sound of sheer silence. I mean, we hear that, right? God is in the sound of silence. God is in the paradox, the mystery. And it's out of this place of silence that God speaks. Specifically, God puts a question to Elijah. God asks Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? For all of Elijah's wondering and wandering, ultimately in that place of silence where Elijah has to listen, God discerns Elijah. And isn't this the question that God puts to us? When we get still, when we listen, when we wait, and encounter God. Isn't it often that God meets us not offering declarations and affirmations, insights and revelations about who God is? Isn't it more often that God probes our hearts, discerns us and puts the hard questions to you and me? What are you doing here? To be faced with such a question, I think, is terrifying. It forces us to think if we would dare to give an honest answer. Maybe this is one reason why we avoid the silence sometimes. Maybe one reason why abiding, let alone enduring the silence is hard, is that if we would truly commit to such a space, it would open up a world to us that we might not want to see. We have another fellow traveler in scripture who has sat in silence before us. If you're not familiar with the story of Job, 
Allow me to summarize for you. Job tells the story of a righteous person's struggle to understand how God is present in his life and world in the face of incredible suffering and confusion. The story starts with an account of the heavenly court of divine beings. And to really dive into that would take a whole sermon series and we are not going down that path today. Um, So we're going to leave that um, and just get to the end result, which is that God allows the divine accuser, the Satan, to persecute Job to test his righteousness. Job loses everything, his wealth, his stability, his reputation in the community, his servants, his children, his health, I'm going chronologically, not by order of importance, but that's kind of just how it, how it lays out. Job is stripped of all that he has. Job's friends learn of this and head out to comfort and console him. That's what we're told. They head out to comfort and console. When they arrive, they do not recognize him because he's covered in sores, sitting in the ash heap outside town, and he is um, tearing at his skin with a piece of broken pottery. I mean, it's just a sad, sad scene. Um, So his friends see him, they weep out loud, they tear their robes, they pour dust on their heads, and then they sit in silence with him for seven whole days. And we're told they do this for they see his suffering is great. And credit where credit's due, I have never sat grieving with someone for seven straight days. Um, That is some serious solidarity. So Job and his Three, maybe four. There's like a fourth guy. I don't know when he shows up. But the four to five of them are sitting alone in the silence, grieving in the mess of it for seven full days and nights. But after the seven days of grieving and there's no respite, no change in circumstances for Job, no answer, there's no disclosure on Job's part as to what sin caused his suffering, his friends start to get anxious because they know that sin leads to punishment while the righteous are rewarded. And Job is not fessing up as to what he did to warrant this outcome. His experience does not square with their view of the world. So they need to start interpreting so that his life makes sense to them again. The time for mourning is over, so let's, let's fix it. But after the seven days of silence, I think as these friends are getting kind of antsy, it's actually Job who speaks first. And a conversation, a a lengthy debate commences. I will briefly summarize the next 37 chapters of Job. Okay. Job opens his mouth first and says, I want to die. His friends, his friend Elahaz, pardon, answers, no one is righteous and God disciplines his children, so trust God and you will prosper. Job replies, I've not done anything to deserve this. I will voice my complaint. Why, God, do you hurt me? His friend Bildad chimes in with some good if-then theology. If you sin, God will punish. If you repent, God will restore you. Simple. Job is moving on from this. Job says, it is not fair. I can't even bring my accusation to God as equals because God is God. Who will arbitrate among us? His friend Zophar adds, You must be guilty. Cast off your guilt and you will get better. Job, everything you're saying I understand, but here's the thing. I am suffering and I know something new and I need to talk to God about it. And your advice from your comfortable, secure place is worthless to me. Eliphaz replies, what about your experience is unique? Otherwise, old people agree with us. Job, I would say the same thing if I was in your shoes, 
Also, God is both my adversary and the one who can vouch I've done no wrong. There is something wrong with that. Bildad, we know for sure that the wicked don't prosper. Job, God has put me in the wrong. Zophar, well, okay, the wicked prosper, but they won't endure. Job, you're wrong. The wicked die in comfort. Eliphaz, you've sinned. Repenting God will restore your fortunes. Job, if I could but plead my case to God, God would listen. Bildad, what mortal can truly be righteous before God? Job, we can't comprehend God's power, but I've lost everything. And then Elihu, this is this fourth guy. We don't really know where he comes from. He strolls up and decides to add his two cents at the end. He says, God won't pervert justice, so God must be testing you. Okay, that was 37 chapters. Then in chapter 38, God shows up. And in chapter 38, we read, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God's in the theophany this time. That storm, God's in it. God shows up and God speaks to Job. Who receives the word of the Lord? Who is addressed? Who encounters God in this whole story? Job. When God comes, it is just like with Elisha. God comes bearing God's own questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you presume to know the depths of knowledge and wisdom of my world? God questions Job. And God's main agenda here is to demonstrate God's power and rulership over all creation, including Job's suffering. God does not address the injustice of Job's experience. And we, if we know this story, we know that Job's suffering is unjust. That's the whole point. Um, the fact that this is unaddressed in the text is problematic. But what I find incredibly valuable is this. The world that Job knew was shattered. And Job just sits in silence, waiting, listening. And maybe in that silence, some things get clarified. So when the seven days are up, it's not Job's friends who get the ball rolling, it's Job. Job speaks. And he's not talking to his friends, he's talking to God. Job says, hey God, I have some beef with you. And because you're God and I'm mortal, that's not even fair. God, I am angry. I am hurt. I am sad. I'm confused. I'm lonely. I'm doubting. I don't even know how to trust you anymore. Job does not spiritualize his experience like his friends do. He does not presume to make excuses for God, gaslighting himself in the process. Job does not attempt to reconcile the absurdity and contradiction of his experience. Job is honest. In chapter 11, or chapter 7, verse 11, he says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job acknowledges that his friend's perspective makes sense. Um, were he not in the place that he is now? And as a result of Job's being in this place, this new place, he cannot go back and grab hold of what worked before. 
And Job is a clear communicator. He makes sure his friends know how unhelpful their affirmations are to him. Um, he calls them unhelpful counselors and worthless physicians. Um, if you would only keep silent, that would be your wisdom, he tells them. And this is amazing to me. I find this incredible. Job knows why his friends can't go where he goes. And the text records him telling us why. First, they don't have the experience that makes the old truths bitter. Second, he compares them to a caravan of travelers who turn aside from their course in order to find a certain destination and find themselves disappointed because they were confident in what they were find and they don't find that and then they become confused. Quote, such as you have now become to me, you see my calamity and are afraid. Their confidence is confounded because they see his calamity, his confusion, his reality, and become afraid themselves. I think sometimes when we're honest, especially in the hard times, that can confuse the confidences that others might have. They might become afraid seeing our experiences. Perhaps we deny our places of wondering and wandering and questioning and fear for fear that it will drive our close ones away from us and that estranged from our old reality and our old community, we will be very alone. But back to the text, God shows up, uh, interrupting Elihu, which is just fine. Uh, and God faces Job, only in the last few sentences of God's whole monologue, which goes on for a few chapters, does God even acknowledge that there are other people there. Like God shows up, God's talking to Job. It is not until the very end that God's like, oh, by the way, and you guys in the room as well. Um, God turns to Eliphaz, the first of these friends, and says, my wrath is kindled against you and your friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has done. Much of what Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu share is not theologically incorrect. A lot of it mirrors the wisdom literature of Proverbs and asserts that God is righteous, just, and powerful. Meanwhile, Job is over here asking the earth to swallow him up. Um, I don't think that speaking what is right in this case is about the content of the statements made per se. I think that Job hits the nail on the head when he calls out that his friends are falling back on their certainties. They see the world grow confused and become afraid. Job too experiences pain and fear and confusion. His life falls apart. He experiences it in probably the most direct way of the characters in the story. But Job tells God about it. Job is honest Job tells God that God will see him in court if he can find a way. And God tells us that Job speaks rightly. What keeps us like Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, and Elihu falling back on our certainties, not speaking rightly? You might have 
your own reasons that come to mind. I think one that pops up for me is that fully stepping into the silence is vulnerable. When we get still and quiet, when we sit outside the noise, maybe we realize that we're not in control. I think so much of how we think about faith often comes down to ways that we get to exercise control. Um, ways that we get to tell a story that structures our world in a way that's comfortable and understandable for us. So when opportunities for silence and listening for what God might ask us come, um, we might do anything to escape if that will disrupt what we have. And the escape, right, the performing of our religious programs so that we have some control or feel like we have some control, uh, it has the appearance, I think, to others and even to ourselves of piety, of faithfulness. We can fool ourselves if we're not careful. I think another reason that silence and listening um, is hard is that they can reveal an inner world of doubt, of confusion, of questions, of grief. Think about it. To walk by faith is to declare trust in a person who we have not met fully in the midst of a world that is constantly changing and very confusing. And following, knowing this person, getting to know them more and more is a process where by necessity we experience periods of doubt where we have questions, where we waver, where we second guess. That's normal. If that doesn't sound normal, then go read Mark. We spent like a year or two or three years in it. That's the story of Mark. Go back and revisit. Um, maybe you've been in a place recently where the words, the confidences, the assurances and stability of the previous season are in your rear view. Maybe as you've been on your journey walking this path, the terrain has changed and now you're in a different place. Maybe you've never been here before. Maybe you're looking out at the world, at the news, at our natural disasters, and school shootings, and human rights violations and manipulations that seem to proliferate every day. Maybe you're looking at your family, at where you work and play and feel loss, disconnection, confusion. Maybe you're looking at church, at your faith, at God, and what was once safe and stable now feels questionable, dangerous, uncertain. Maybe your new place is something else entirely. In our tradition and culture, and by that I mean the, the global Northwest and the white evangelical church within the global Northwest, um, we trade in certainties. We trade in affirmative statements assurances, concrete things we can stand on, we place a high premium in our culture on confidence. We can become so familiar with this tradition that we confuse it for reality, that we mistake it for truth. We can become so dependent on it that our real experiences of being on the flip side of uncertainty, doubt, unknowing, wondering, wandering, questioning, hurting, that these can be treated as suspect problem that we have to overcome, a test of our faith. For me personally, if my walk with God does not send me headlong into encounter with the world and all of its mess and beauty, if it doesn't leave me asking over and over again, what is going on here? Why, God? Where are you? 
What does this mean? Where is wisdom to be found in this? If my faith does not leave me with questions and doubts in that struggle, if it rather sends me into certainties, doctrines, propositions, every problem having a clear solution, if it sends me into answers that alienate myself from my neighbors, if it's based on these things, it is not walking with God. I need the story of Elijah because I need to remember that God waits for me in the silence. That God is known in the silence. That God searches me in the silence. And I need the story of Job because I need to go back and remember that my God is not threatened, intimidated, or offended at my honest, messy reality. God does not shame or chastise my doubts and my wanderings. God does not shy away, but in fact honors when I show up and say, hey, I am hurting. I am angry. I am sad. I am confused. I am lonely, and I don't get it anymore. Maybe I never did. My God hears this and answers back, even puts the question to me. God speaks to me. God fellowships with me here. Whatever your experience at this crossroads is, whatever you're carrying, whether it resembles Job's or Elijah's or the disciples in that upper room at Pentecost, um, or maybe it's something else completely different, whatever it is, notice it. Name it. Tell the truth about it. Bring it into your space with God. And listen. In fact, a benediction. I bless your doubts, your questions, your wondering and wandering, your grief and sadness and hurt. I declare them as holy unto the Lord. May they be your offering to your God. May you stand honestly, truthfully, holy before your creator. Now, it would be an irony and a shame to spend all of our time together talking about the importance of silence and listening and waiting and not actually practice the thing, right? Sometimes if it's hard to do a thing alone, it can be helpful to practice it together, which is what we're going to do. We're going to take the final part of our time and service today to practice this posture of silence and listening. We're going to use a form of contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer has a history in the Christian faith that goes back millennia. Um, it's a discipline that's underexplored in many churches in, in the West, but globally it has a vibrancy and it's very active in the global church. Contemplative prayer is simply practicing the quiet, waiting, noticing receptivity to the Spirit. It's not complicated, but it's not easy. That's why it's a practice. In contemplative prayer, we are not aiming to hear a word per se. Um, because sometimes waiting and striving to hear a word can actually distract us from being open and just listening, accepting the moment as it is. The practice is the goal. The journey is the destination, okay? It's a practice. So I'm going to guide our contemplative prayer with a reflection written by Leslie Savage, who quotes other Christian contemplatives. Uh, Leslie is actually here with us. You raise your hand, Leslie, is that okay? Hey! <laughs> 
Leslie is a Christian contemplative and leader at Snoqualmie Valley Alliance. So just another Alliance church, just a little, little ways east. Um, she leads groups on focusing and spirituality and offers spaces for group contemplative prayer. So if something in this practice really catches you and you're curious about exploring more, know that we have Alliance family who are leading and pastoring and shepherding this work. And so reach out, like she's here, talk to her. Um, this is a practice that you can join in with every week. So to do this, I'm actually gonna come and, and sit with you right down here and get comfortable sitting because that's how we're gonna do it together. <sighs> so to do this, we're each gonna get comfortable in our seats. Feel free to close your eyes if you're comfortable with that. Or perhaps you can direct your gaze downward. Just take a moment to let your breath grow deeper. Let yourself grow still. Find a little bit of rest in this moment on your Sunday morning. I will guide us with a reading and prompts to reflect. Reflect silently, internally, as you're led. Bring your gaze inward. Allow your eyes to soften and rest. You are not alone. Holy Spirit is here in and between each of us. We are all interconnected. Allow your body to rest in your next exhale, releasing any tension it might be holding in your neck and shoulders, in your chest, in your solar plexus and diaphragm, in your belly. God is holding you. With each exhale, allow your body to rest deeper into God. Awake to the stillness in you and the presence of Holy Spirit. Like it or not, we all stumble into the mystery of God. Admittedly or by denial. The paradox is that admitting to ourselves and to God that we don't have a handle on who God is, have doubts, if God is real, or that it's just too much to think about, then most likely we are closer to God then 
than at other times in our life. The mystics have echoed these vibrations throughout time. God is a mystery of humble love. It is a mystery that you cannot reason or try to figure out. You must simply live in the mystery, the cloud of not knowing. When we surrender and lay bare all our doubts, questions, disbeliefs to God without any conditions or reservations, then we have entered the humble mystery of God's love. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and mind. Try to welcome and love the doubt, the questions, the disbelief, the uncomfortableness that is there. It is in the messiness of not knowing that we can live the questions now and then perhaps gradually, without noticing, live along some distant day into the answers. It is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through stages of instability. and that it may take a very long time. We are naturally quite impatient with not knowing and want answers without delay. We want to skip the uncomfortable, messy stages of instability that are part of our faith journey into the not knowing and on the way to the mystery of something new. Try to enjoy the roller coaster ride into the mystery of God's humble love. Living by faith is a bewildering venture. We rarely know what's coming. Not many things turn out the way we anticipate. Try to find peace in the not knowing. Let these words float through your body, your heart, your mind, your soul. And just notice what comes.
Living by faith is a bewildering venture. We rarely know what's coming. Not many things turn out the way we anticipate. Try to find peace in the not knowing. Notice how your body is holding these words. Maybe there's a physical sensation, like a knot, a rustling, or an expansion, a warmth. Maybe an emptiness. Or nothing, even nothing is something. Use these suggestions to draw you closer to what is there. Living by faith is a bewildering venture. We rarely know what's coming. Not many things turn out the way we anticipate. Try to find peace in the not knowing. Notice if there is an emotional response to these words. Like a sense of peace or rebellion, joy or dread, maybe contentment or shame. Perhaps gratitude. Use these suggestions to draw you closer to what emotion is there. Living by faith is a bewildering venture. We rarely know what's coming. Not many things turn out the way we anticipate. 
try to find peace in the not knowing. Simply stay and sit with these words. Notice if something wants to be seen or heard. Maybe something feels threatened. Perhaps there's an unmet longing or a yearning to flourish. Just notice what comes to you. No expectations, no forcing. Living by faith is a bewildering venture. We rarely know what's coming. Not many things turn out the way we anticipate. Try to find peace in the not knowing. Notice what comes Let it be there as it is. Listen and sense if there is more. Perhaps there is something Holy Spirit would like you to know. Sense through your heart, your body, your mind, your spirit. Listen and welcome what comes. Living by faith is a bewildering venture. 
we rarely know what's coming. Not many things turn out the way we anticipate. Try to find peace in the not knowing. Let these words float through your body, mind, heart, and soul. Maybe there is a time or place in your life that Holy Spirit wants to show you. Maybe it is a memory. Maybe it is a visual image, a color, a feeling, a song, or a word. Take this next moment to conclude and thank your body, your mind, your heart, and Holy Spirit for what was revealed. We will take three deep breaths together. And on our next breath, we will blink our eyes open and conclude our time in prayer. I'll invite uh, Tommy and Daniel to come up and, and pray over this time. God, we thank you for being present and full, even in our hard places and our wandering. We thank you for being present in the silence and in the spaces of just being and resting in you. We ask that we would encounter you in these places that we would be fed and renewed. And we pray over our time together. We thank you for being present with us here. 
and seek your help in sustaining as we go from here into the rest of our day and the rest of our week as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.